book of Mark in chapter 2. And as you're doing that, I wanted to remind you that if you brought a note for our local Afghan community to encourage them, please give that to Dave, Mindy Fenske. There's a box at the information table. And if you wanted to do so but forgot to do so, Matthew and Alana back there waving their hands, they have paper for you. And so you can get a sheet of paper from them and fill out a note right here and then drop that in the box. It's a great way to encourage local folks who are in a very personal way hurting over the situation in Afghanistan. Mark chapter 2, we're going to finish our little mini-series we're calling Lessons from a Pandemic. We're drawing three lessons for our church in particular as we look to transition to post-pandemic life, Lord willing. Uh, follow along, please, as Emily reads our passage in Mark chapter 2. Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. If you are here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want to say, first of all, I'm so glad you're here, and I don't want you to misunderstand this sermon today. The Christian message is about a God who created us, loves us, and sent his son to die for us. For us to be consistent with that message, we want others to know of that love. That's just being consistent, and that's what I'm talking about today being consistent with our desire that you, too, would know the love of God. Now, with that in mind, I wanted to review briefly how we seek to do that here. And so you have a handout in your bulletin, and I'm just going to skim over the highlights here and let you read this in detail later on. But notice this handout, if you would, please, entitled Our Great Commission Strategy. It begins with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus speaking. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Go, therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's been said that if you strip out that great commission from local church life, the church becomes a barge tied up to a pier. A nice barge, 
with two main areas, a hospital where people are cared for and a classroom where people are taught. But without that commission and the going part in particular, the barge stays tied up to the pier. It never goes anywhere. It never makes any waves. Now, we must be part hospital and part classroom. But we want to make some waves as well. We want to be used by God in his mission right here. So this handout it seeks to summarize what we do under three main headings, conveniently each starting with the letter E. How about that? First, we seek to envision. That involves prayer. Because, friends, all conversions happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. It involves preaching, like today. It involves testimonies. And Eric Lemkule, our newly minted deacon of personal evangelism, will coordinate those for us. So... If you may have a story of how God might be using you in outreach, please, please see Eric. Or, you know what, it could be a story of some difficulty in outreach or maybe a, a failure in some moment, and those can encourage us too. Eric would love to chat with you about that. We seek to envision, we seek to equip. Secondly, part of that equipping involves a goal a goal that each one of us would have one person that is far from God but close to you that you are praying for and reaching out to. We call that a, a one life. It's the irreducible minimum. We can't each reach out to less than one person, okay? Here's the, here's the bottom line. Make that your goal, friends. And so we seek to train to that end, and we will use some equipping in our home groups this year. We seek to fellowship to that end, to encourage one another and make resources available to you. And Eric Lemkule, our newly minted deacon of personal evangelism, is available to assist you. If you are reaching out in some way and you're looking for resources, see Eric, he can help you. Eric, Eric brings a gift for leadership and a heart, a huge heart of compassion. He would love to assist you. We envision, we equip, and thirdly, we enable. That just means we seek to assist you in your personal evangelism. You can use invitations we provide to invite to our Sunday services. Every Sunday, we share the good news of Jesus Christ. We have provided and will provide in the future a couple of courses that are helpful to you to use. Life Explored and Christianity Explored. We plan to use those again. And we have local mercy ministry partners and missionary partners as well. We support a missionary in remote Mexico, church planters in Tokyo, and a chaplain in the United States Navy. That's what we have done and will do to not be a barge just tied up to the pier, but by God's grace and God's power and for God's glory to hopefully make some waves. So pray to that end if you would. Now, if you don't mind, take that document and put it to the side and study it in detail later on. <laughs> because that leads to our final pandemic lesson. 
through this pandemic, we've all become aware of a concept called social distancing. Social distancing has entered our vernacular. Staying six feet away from one another. And we want to make sure a practice of social distancing doesn't become the new norm in post-pandemic life. Because it's easy to do that, isn't it? It's easy to withdraw into our socially isolated cocoons. It's easy for me. Last week was important that way. And the priority of fellowship together we talked about. But there's another area. Another area we must guard against the temptation to socially distance forever. An area where we can socially distance all too easily and regularly, and that's with those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Friends, many Christians <laughs> are fine with not just six feet of relational distance, but six miles, as it were, when it comes to others who don't yet know Christ. Why is that? Why why do so many Christians, why can it be so easy for us to socially distance ourselves from those who don't yet know Jesus? Perhaps many answers we could give, but I want to derive an answer from this passage that might surprise you. Here we find Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. A crowd is coming to him, and he is teaching them. We're not told what he's teaching exactly, but in the previous chapter, we're giving a, given a summation of his teaching to this point. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. The saving reign of God is at hand, and that's because the saving king himself was at hand. And then he says, repent. Turn from going your own way and believe, and believe this good news of the kingdom. So with that saving message still on his lips, he now encounters one Levi, also known as Matthew. And Levi is a tax collector. As you may know, tax collectors were hated in this day. I realize you may not have a preference or affinity for the IRS, but that doesn't quite compare. These guys took money for the Romans or took money for the hated local dictator, Herod, and they were often swindlers, taking money for the government and for themselves. Loan shark might be the connotation that is appropriately equivalent for us today. So tax collectors, tax collectors were despised outcasts from regular society. But to this despised outcast, Jesus says in verse 14, notice verse 14, follow me. Become one of my disciples. And he, Levi, rose in what was a costly decision for him and followed him. And not only that, Levi hosts a dinner party with Jesus, it appears, as the guest of honor. Verse 15, as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his, Levi's house, many, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
as an outcast himself, Levi's only friends were fellow outcasts, here called sinners and tax collectors. Sinners, sinners being flagrant violators of God's law, people living in overt rebellion to God. You might imagine the prostitutes and the crooks, the thieves and the like. And isn't it remarkable in verse 15, it says there were many of such people, many who followed him. Now, Jesus never condoned sin. He is the Holy One in the flesh. He never condones sin. And yet, many flagrant sinners are attracted to him. Many want to hang out with him and, and be with him. It made me think about who... Who are perhaps the outcasts for us today? Who might we distance ourselves from because of their sin? For some Christians, I'm trusting not us, but for some Christians, it's for those in the LBGTQ community. I'm not saying we condone what the Bible prohibits but some Christians can view the LBGTQ community as sort of a spiritual, untouchable class. Though they bear God's very image, like you and me. Or for you, the outcast could be the person next door who just bugs you. Or the person who is different from you politically or morally. But who are the outcasts for you? Realize that's who Jesus is hanging with. And not everybody appreciates that. Namely, we're introduced to the scribes and the Pharisees, religious separatists, scholars conserved to, uh, concerned to preserve and transmit the law of God, a good thing, but it got twisted for many of them. Many became obsessed with mere outward behavior and not a transformed heart like God cares about. In their eyes, Jesus is hanging with people that no self-respecting religious person should ever be found with, let alone a rabbi. Their complaint in particular, in verse 16, he eats with these people. Verse 16, when they saw that he was eating with uh, sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees said to his disciples, why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now maybe they thought those, those sinners could care less about the dietary laws. They don't even try to eat kosher, so eating with them immediately defiles you. Perhaps that was part of the issue, but probably the issue was more about what the eating implied. In this culture, eating together implied identification. It implied relationship, a degree of intimacy and care. That's why this is so scandalous for these Pharisees. Why does he identify with and relate to and seem to care about people like that? You see, the Pharisees practiced social distancing long before we heard about it. 
and they can't understand why Jesus doesn't do the same. So he explains in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Jesus says, I'm like a doctor who pursues the sick. I mean, it's silly to think of a doctor who refuses to meet with sick people. And so it is with the great physician of our souls. His mission, in fact, his purpose, he goes on to say, is this. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's not saying, he's not saying there are some who are righteous in and of themselves, and they don't need a savior. He's not saying that. He's, in effect, saying, I am calling to salvation those who by divine grace see their need for salvation. He came to call sinners to salvation like Levi and like me and like you. That's the point in verse 17. That's the punchline. The spiritually needy find the Savior we need in Jesus. It's simple and profound. The spiritually needy find the Savior we need in Jesus. Those who see the need of their souls, for them, they find the great physician they need in Christ. And maybe that's you this morning. You are realizing your guilt before God. Maybe there's a sense of shame and you're realizing that you need a great physician. You're, you're becoming aware of the, the sin sickness in your soul, you might say, that you carry with you. Friend, the kingdom of God is open to all who see their need and come to faith in Christ. There is no way for you to heal yourself, but this great physician makes house calls. Here he calls an outcast to become a founding member of his new society. Take that in. An outcast. You're a founding member, Levi, Matthew, of the new society I'm building. That means you too are not too far from Christ. Come to him even now, believing. But what about for those... <clears throat> who are already Jesus' disciples. How might you and I apply this, if that applies to you? Well, we asked earlier, why do we tend to socially distance ourselves from those who don't yet know Christ? Why, why is that? And that, that's the essence of the Pharisees' objection here. Jesus doesn't distance himself from people. By golly, he should be distancing himself from. He's hanging out with sinners. He eas he's eating with them. He's identifying with them. He's expressing relationship and care for them. Can't we have the same thought? I don't want to identify with such people. Not in a way that implies relationship, care. I'd rather distance myself. 
What's the solution, friends? What, what help might we derive from this passage? Well, I think it's twofold. Twofold. See your need of Jesus, number one, and see the mission of Jesus, number two. That's what I want to talk about. See your need personally for Jesus in an ongoing way and see Jesus and his mission right here. I believe the two are related. Isn't it as we remember our spiritual need for him that we care more about those who need him as well? I mean, isn't this part of the problem, friends? We forget our personal need of Jesus and become, in ways, self-righteous. And the Pharisees embody that here in Mark chapter 2, smug self-righteousness. They do so in Luke 15 as well, where the same objection is raised, Jesus eating with sinners. So Jesus tells a few parables in response, including the parable of the prodigal son. And the surprise ending of that parable is that the outwardly obedient son, the inwardly self-righteous son, is the true prodigal son. Or maybe most clearly, you see this with the Old Testament prophet Jonah, commanded by God to go to preach to the city of Nineveh, Israel's enemies. Jonah gets up and goes the exact opposite direction. God sends a storm and a big fish to rescue Jonah from himself. Jonah gets a second shot, goes to Nineveh, preaches. Revival breaks out in Nineveh. People repent, respond to God. Jonah is happy. No. Jonah is angry. Angry that God would show mercy to sinners like the Ninevites. The Pharisees here in Mark 2, they're like Jonah reincarnate. You see, I think we could call it a spiritual axiom. The more you stay aware of your need for Christ, the great physician, the more you'll care about others' need for Christ. But friends, the less the less you remember your personal need for Christ, the less you'll care about those who need him as well. In other words, as we stay close to our need for the great physician, we will follow him in his mission all the more. As D.T. Niles, a pastor in Sri Lanka in the 1900s put it famously, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We are not bakers with our own storehouse of bread that we have achieved. We are beggars who have found the bread of life, who are just telling other beggars where to find the bread of life as well. You see, the answer, friends, the answer is see your need for Jesus. And then see Jesus yourself and his mission. Stay close to your own need for Christ. Like the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee himself, 
who never forgot his need for Jesus, who always remembered his desperate need for the great physician. He wrote to his sidekick, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel, the good news. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, he says. He doesn't say, I was the foremost back when I was a Pharisee. Man, I was a wreck. I needed him, but not, not, I don't need him so much now. Not, I was the foremost. I, I am the foremost still, the foremost sinner whom Christ came to save. You see, the Apostle Paul stayed scandalized by this gospel, and we must do the same. The scandal here in Mark 2, the scandal of Jesus eating with sinners culminates in the scandal of the cross where identif identification with us occurred, where the father thought of your guilt as belonging to his son, and he thought of his son's perfect righteousness as belonging to you. Your sin, thought of as belonging to Jesus. Jesus' righteousness, thought of as belonging to you. That's gloriously scandalous. Stay scandalized by that gospel. So for me, for me, the most important thing in my Bible reading in the morning, top priority, see Jesus and my need of Jesus. That's a good quiet time from any passage, any passage. See Jesus and see my need of Jesus. Then, then I will live that day, Lord willing, in the words of the famous hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Friends, every day, every day is another day for you to say to God, nothing Empty hands, God, nothing, nothing in them of saving value, nothing to take away my sins, nothing of meritorious work on my part, simply to thy bloody cross and empty tomb I cling. That's how you remember your own spiritual need. That's how you stay close to your need for the great physician. And then second, see Jesus and his mission. See your need for Jesus and see Jesus himself. It was the venerable theologian J.I. Packer who once said, we can correct wooliness. That's a nice Packer word. Fuzziness. We can correct wooliness in our view of discipleship, he said, through constant meditation on the four Gospels. He explained why. He said the doctrines on which our discipleship rests are clearest in the epistles, the letters of the New Testament. But the nature of discipleship itself is most vividly portrayed in the Gospels. He's saying this call to discipleship that Levi heeds and that we must heed, this call to discipleship is like a game of follow the leader. To play follow the leader, what do you need? 
You need a clear vision of the leader. That's what the gospel accounts provide for you. The nature of discipleship, as Dr. Packer put it. Here we see Jesus, our leader and savior, not hanging just with people who had it all together, but with sinners who desperately need him. And, and they wanted to be with him. Many tax collectors and sinners are following him here. Many were attracted to him. Should we not follow our leader in this? It means being distinct, yes, but not separate, not socially distanced always, not in a hermetically sealed life away from them. It means pursuing hospitality, having them into your own home. It might mean reading the Bible with someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, like the Gospel of Mark, or just being a friend. Eric Lemkiel has helped me in this way, reminding me to have, just be there for them. Just be a friend, praying for them. And realize this, of the Jesus, sinners are attracted to in Mark chapter 2. There is nothing more like Jesus on the earth than you. Than you. The spirit of Jesus resides within you. The Holy Spirit is conforming you every day to the image of Jesus Christ. Nothing else on the face of the planet is more like Jesus than you. In a world where everyone is just out for themselves, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, survival of the fittest, you show his love and his kindness. In a world where everyone's promoting themselves, a me-first world, let me show you how I'm better than you kind of world, you reflect his humility and servanthood. People are still attracted to that. Sung and I were out at a concert. We saw... A friend of mine, our wives hadn't seen each other in, I don't know, three or four years maybe. So we're catching up, we're chit-chatting. The lady's talking about all the decorating she's been doing. And Sung just says to her, you are so wonderfully intentional. I love how intentional you are. The lady is taken aback. I mean, who does that? Who encourages others? Who builds others up? You do because of the spirit of Jesus within you. Joshua runs with a guy who's a really good runner, and Joshua's a really good runner too. This other guy is just super, super quiet. But when he's with Joshua, he opens up. Why is that? Well, because Joshua is easy to be with. He is kind, and so are you, because the spirit of Jesus within you. Yes, our gospel will offend. If you're thinking that right now, of course. But the Jesus who is attractive to sinners in Mark 2 is the same Jesus who resides in you by the presence of his spirit. 
And that Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost. This Jesus you see on the pages of your Bible, he's still seeking and saving the lost. Last year when I said to you, hey, let's, let's all have one person we're praying for at least and reaching out to, I, I didn't know who that would be for me. I just began to pray, God, help me. <laughs> Lead me to whom that person might be. And then I'm running with some friends. We're running around Coronado. We're going nice and slow, which is my pace. And I'm talking to one of the guys I hadn't seen in a while. And I said, hey, what's new? He said, well, I've been reading the Bible a lot. Well, tell me about that. We talked about that. After a while, I said, hey, we've got this Simply Jesus study. It goes through one of the biographies of Jesus, the Gospel of John. You want to do that together? Sure, okay, we did it. And he kept saying, well, I, I believe intellectually in Jesus, but I'm really not ready to personally surrender to him and trust in him. Fine, finish John. Hey, you want to go through the Gospel of Mark? Sure, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. I regularly ask my friend, so where are you with Jesus? My friend would say, well, yeah, I mean, I think he's real, pretty sure of that, but really not ready to personally trust in him, surrender to him. Okay. Finally, one day he said, yeah, I think I, think I need to do that. Okay, good. And he went away on a trip, He comes back. I asked him the same question. He goes, yeah, I, I, I surrendered to Christ. So, okay, well, tell me what that means. <laughs> I'm trusting in him alone for forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. We're still going through Mark. We were looking at the cross of Christ recently. I said to my friend, that is God's love for you. He just said, I know, it's so exciting. And I was excited too. The point is, this Jesus is still seeking and saving the lost, and he wants to use you and me. Friends, see your need of Jesus. Stay close to your need for the great physician. Combat self-righteousness. Combat social distance. See your need of the great physician. And then see Jesus, his mission, his purpose to save sinners like you and me. Let's pray.